0: Welcome to The Conversation, a podcast about educational technology, the learning sciences, and instructional design. So in the first four episodes, we laid the foundation of what is learning, and this week we're finally ready to pivot to the main purpose of the course, which is about technology integration, what technologies help with learning, and how to integrate it into our instructional designs. My guest is Brittany, who already introduced herself last week, so we're going to just jump right into the conversation. Thank you, and welcome back, Brittany.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So last week when we read about how experts differ from novices, the reading mentioned something about content knowledge and pedagogical content knowledge, which the uh, TPAC reading from this week also builds on. And Marina, in her response to last week's voice thread, mentioned something about the Danielson rubric. So can you tell us a little bit about the Danielson rubric?
1: Yeah, so the Danielson rubric um, pretty much just talks about like it's not you're testing your content knowledge by any point, but it's talking more about like how you're conveying the material to the students and how you're tapping into the pedagogy that you're using Mm -hmm. to convey that message and addressing like students misconceptions along the way. So what I really enjoyed about the article specifically was that I I don't want to necessarily say that content isn't that important in being a teacher, because obviously that is very important, but equally as important is the pedagogy that you use behind your teaching. Mm -hmm. So for example, when I was teaching my students proofs, a lot of times when we were talking about addition and subtraction of parts, that was very difficult for them to understand. And I knew that going into it because they're thinking, okay, it's a side, but it's just too long. And like, they don't conceptually realize that they can quote unquote, cut it. So then, like I gave them examples of that they were able to attach extra pieces onto it, like an extension, like a hair extension would, or um, one example when we had to subtract it and cut a piece down, like it was kind of like hemming pants, um, just so it fitted the fit the size that we needed. So again, like addressing. The misconceptions are like finding ways to tap into that knowledge with things that students already know. Mm -hmm. I think it's part of the expertise behind pedagogy and like the reason that um, teaching becomes so successful.
0: As I was rereading the article on the TPAC framework by Mishra and Kohler, I felt like the Venn diagram where they had the content and the pedagogy and the technology and where they broke it down and where they overlap in different parts, I thought that could potentially be the most confusing part. Did you feel that way and how did you approach it in general?
1: I agree. And I'm going to be honest with you. Like, at first, I was kind of like, wait, what? Like, I really don't agree with them being entirely separate. I agree that um, more when they brought them together and they Uh had that overlap, because again, As I mentioned in the last example, not only do you have to know content, but you have to know the pedagogy behind teaching that content or the misconceptions that students are going to have behind that content. Same thing with when it goes to technology, like you cannot just use technology for the sake of using technology. You have to find a way that it either relates to your content or relates to the pedagogy that you're teaching the student. And then same thing with uh, technology and pedagogy. Again, like you're not just implementing a technology for the sake of using it; it has Mm -hmm. to be meaningful. So I like when I looked at it separately, like they did initially, and they just drew like the two circles. Um, It was, I believe, it was on page 120, where it says like two circles representing pedagogical and Ten twenty, I think it's like Uh, yes, ten twenty. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> uh, but um when they had the two circles drawn separately, I was like that doesn't really make sense to me cuz they go together and then like the following page 1022 when they talked about the intersection that was to me I was like okay like that makes sense now cuz originally I was like how can you be telling me that they're two separate circles mm-hmm. like they relate like I know they relate But as they went on to then further explain, and then they kind of intersected them with the three circles, and they talked about technological pedagogical knowledge, technological pedagogical content knowledge, pedagogical content knowledge, and technological content knowledge, it made more sense to me. I just think that as the reading first portrayed it, it was kind of easy to get stuck in that first area. And kind of say like, okay, well, how does this go together? But as they did explain it, it became more clear. I also liked how they then went through each of the types of knowledge because a lot of times like, yeah, like we know what those three are individually, but how they play a role together, like when it becomes like the pedagogical content or the technological content, like those things, it made it clearer for me to understand it because originally it was a little confusing.
0: I agree. I think part of their point is to say that it doesn't make sense to look at them separately. And I think even on page 1029, they said, end of the third paragraph, they say, productive technology integration in teaching needs to consider all three issues, not in isolation, but rather within the complex relationships and the system defined by this. So I think they are precisely making your point. But also, it I guess, just for the clarity's sake, they do want to start up by talking about them separately but then also say, actually, it doesn't make sense to think about them in isolation. And in last week's voice clear discussion, the last required slide was about content knowledge and pedagogical content knowledge. And it sounds like all of you had a good idea of what the difference is. And I was also struck by something I think Marina said when she talked about professional learning, professional development workshops, where these three things might be approached separately and why that might be problematic because you really need to look at them in isolation maybe for practical purposes. Or if you're working with teachers across different disciplines, I think maybe that makes sense. But I think one of the criticisms that they provide is that you shouldn't approach them separately.
1: Right. Yeah, because I think that it's so easy for us um, to be given a workshop that says like, okay, like this is a great technology to use. But yet it's like, okay, how do I use that in my content? How do I use that in my classroom? Because, again, every classroom is different. But that's just going along with just technological um, content. But as far as like doing the overlap,
0: mm-hmm. thinking
1: about like how does it relate to my field? Will it be meaningful for my students when I incorporate this into it? Because I think that's one of the biggest thing as teachers is we don't want anything to ever be a waste of time for mm-hmm. students mm-hmm. because they put so much effort into things. We put so much effort into things that at the end of the day, like we want to make sure that it pays off and that they understand things as opposed to them like just doing the sake of busy work.
0: I mean, that's also why in this class, for example, I, I wouldn't teach you like how to use a specific tool because that would basically just be technology knowledge, which could become obsolete next year or, or next month. Right. And it's more useful that you have a framework to understand how to approach different technologies within your content area and within your pedagogical needs than for me to teach you how to use any tool in particular.
1: Right. I took a course last semester um, that actually talked about like using social media in classroom, and I remember an article that I read. Um, it kind of just exactly said the same thing that you said and what we've been talking about, where it was like they t- they teach you how to use a technology, but yet now you have to figure out how to use it in your content area. Mm-hmm. So, like for example, like something like Twitter, mm-hmm. like it's really hard in math to use. Twitter because there aren't the mathematical symbols that we need on those keyboards, but also using like Twitter's confined to so many characters that by the time we even, let's say, type out a math problem that we would tweet for our students to solve, there really wouldn't be any extra space for us to ask them a question about it. Or like, again, maybe I could tweet out a picture instead of tweeting out the actual question. But like the point being is that like, it's not perfectly succinct to what the classroom environment needs in a math classroom.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. So let's talk more about the TBEK reading. What did you think of it?
1: Um, So in the balance of the Venn diagram with like the content, pedagogical and technological content, do you think that if a teacher lacks expertise in one area, it's possible for them to make it up in another
0: area? That is a good question. Um, Can you give an example?
1: Like maybe like an older teacher, let's say, who isn't that savvy with technology but is really well-versed in content and pedagogy. Like, um, do you think that it's possible for them to still be an effective teacher and like doing those two things and maybe not the greatest person at technology but does the basics? Do you think that it's possible for them to make it up within those other two areas?
0: Yeah, for sure. Because I think content and pedagogical knowledge are both more important than technology knowledge. I think in the Venn diagram they represent it as equal size circles that might make you think that they're equal. I personally don't think it is equal. I think it is important certainly that you you can't teach something if you don't know the content. And you probably can teach, but not very effectively if you don't have the pedagogical knowledge. And If you have content and pedagogical knowledge, then even if you are not familiar with technology, assuming you mean like digital technology, then you can still teach. So I I think for me, content and pedagogical knowledge are both more important in that sense.
1: I guess then that kind of leads me into more of like collaborative learning and cooperative learning.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So I know that I had kind of talked about in one of, I think it was either my voice start or something that I'm not a big fan of cooperative learning Mm -hmm. um but I do see how it can be effective but I want to know from you what um can collaborative learning be a downfall for students and then I guess like in conjunction with that like which do you think is more effective collaborative or cooperative learning
0: downfall sounds sinister (laughs) (laughs) what do you mean by downfall like a weakness yeah so, collaborative learning is one that requires interdependency. So, group members have to work together and complete a task together. Whereas, cooperative learning, the task is divided up into more discrete parts that students can work separately and then put it together at the end. And it sounds like from last week's so or the week before, when I asked you about working together, and many of you have often had bad experience with collaborative learning, where you might have a group member who slacks off, or if the burden is put on just one member, and I think we all have maybe encountered that at some point in our lives. I think as the text argues, this is in the digital technologies chapter, I think ideally we should provide students with opportunities for both, because that's the real world Sometimes you collaborate, sometimes you cooperate. I know a lot of businesses would use incentive programs so that if everyone succeeds, then they get a bonus or something. And I think maybe classrooms could also be designed that way, where if, let's say, the class average raises above a certain level, then maybe the teacher would reward everyone. So that would incentivize students to help each other out and collaborate more. That might be a way of implementing that.
1: Yeah, I think that... um like the reason I pose this question is because like I did talk about this last week, but like I would, I am more the victim of like getting the group that does have a lazy person and then I'm making up the effort for them. So like, I think for me, that's why I kind of was like, wait, which one do you think is more effective, collaborative or cooperative? But in looking at um, technologies such as like Google documents or like Google slides where like you can see everyone's progress and like who's contributing mm-hmm. and then that way like you can then approach that student and say well listen like I'm doing a lot of the work like you could look on the document and see that you haven't done anything yet would you mind contributing something I think that like in this day and age it makes it easier mm-hmm. um, That's true. I I just think like when I was in school, which again, not that that was that long ago, but in general, though, when I was in high school and we were doing projects like this, it was more like you had to do it. You didn't really have the option of using Google to kind of help you with those projects to collaborate. So I think in that sense, technology has made it easier Mm -hmm. to take ownership and responsibility of your participation in a project. I just think that, you know, I'm using my viewpoint, obviously, from when I was in school.
0: Yeah, that's true. I mean, even in this outline that I'm staring at now, you, you get a. I think you can look at the history to see who opened the document, who contributed. Yes. I often look at these outlines and I see someone hasn't looked at it for a while. That always makes yeah. me a little bit nervous. <laughs> um, I guess that's, that is also part of to just to be a little meta again, that these, that's why the podcast is designed to be collaborative, right? We are working on this together and, um, mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I'm not being graded, but... but, uh. (laughs) So yeah, there are some applications that would leave behind the history and the teacher would then have to go and make sense to see who contributed and see how hardworking the group was as a whole or if one student has been carrying the burden of the group.
1: Because obviously then too, like you could always see like, okay, well, like person A only made the slide and didn't do anything else. So like then it becomes like, Okay, if they're actually contributing something that's valuable, like, again, like, obviously, that's up to the teacher and like, you know, in certain circumstances to evaluate. But just, I thought that that was really an interesting point to make.
0: So let's get to a few more of the questions you have on the outline.
1: Um, Sure. So I was gonna say, do you think that previous experiences prepare a student for a later experience of a deeper and more expansive quality? Meaning that like if a student's experience is not moving in a transformative direction, do you think it hinders their motivation to learn?
0: That's interesting. I think so. But do you have a do you have an example that we can talk about?
1: Um when I took calculus in my first couple of courses, um, we used WebAssign.
0: hmm What's and- that?
1: So it's like an online computer question generator per se, but like you had to like solve it and then type it in. But a lot of times the question, like it, when you typed it in, it had to be super specific as to how you wrote it, even to the point where like, if for example, if we had to use pi in our answer,
0: mm-hmm. we
1: couldn't use the lowercase pi. It had to be the capital pi. Mm. And so I think then for a lot of the students, it was very frustrating because we would submit an answer and it would tell us it's wrong. Uh And I think we would only have like two chances to redeem it. And it wouldn't tell you like what was wrong the first time. So you had to redo the question and see where it was. And of course you'd get back to the same answer and you would get frustrated because it was like, I I typed that in, what's Uh wrong with it? Um, So like, I guess that that's kind of, Like, it didn't do anything transformative for me in any way, but I think that it kind of, like, just gave me a little bit of a – what's the word I'm looking for?
0: Traumatic experience.
1: Yeah, traumatic. That's exactly what it is. a little
0: bit of a hyperbole, but –
1: Of course, yeah. But, like, I think that it kind of made me realize, well, like – and I kind of – every time I had to do it, I would leave that to be the last piece of homework I had to do because I was like, this is going to be a nightmare. So I guess, like, in that sense, like, do you think that, like, my experiences with that – necessarily do you think that that would hinder me from wanting to use maybe like that sort of platform with my students in the future or in just in general incorporating technology into math
0: well I can't answer for you so I, <laughs> I, I guess maybe at the, at the very least it sounds like you as a teacher won't use that tool mm-hmm. um it sounds like um I, I've seen memes of this or, or something similar where uh, there's a screenshot of, of someone say, uh, someone's answer saying, your answer is seven. The correct answer is seven. Um, and they <laughs> got it wrong. And it sounds yeah. like maybe somewhere in the system missed some symbol. Uh, like, I, I actually didn't even know there was a capital pi.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, that sounds like an easy fix and also just really lazy design. <laughs> so I think you're right. I think an early negative experience with something would leads students to be turned off by it later down the road. I think online courses would be one example. If you had a really bad experience with an online course, then you might not want to take another online course or at least not take one with the same professor, right? So I think, yeah, I think those early experiences or early encounters will have an impact on how you perceive it or how you use it later on. I
1: also, um, I think this kind of question goes hand in hand a little bit, but um, do you think content neutral technologies are more effective towards student learning than the technology that is more content specific? And I guess like content neutral, um, like an example, like Google, uh, like the Google Suite applications, like documents or stuff like that.
0: I don't know if one type of technology is necessarily better than the other. I think it depends on what you use it for. So with Google Docs, Those have broad applications, but then you have more content-specific tools. And when I saw your question, I actually was thinking of platforms that allow teachers to create their own content. And I know a lot of platforms allow that and the teachers share it, which is helpful. The more user-friendly these platforms can be and also useful so that they're not just so that teachers are not just creating online quizzes, but also allowing them to create meaningful engagement, Higher up on the Bloom's taxonomy. Those kind of tools would be really helpful.
1: Right. I just wanted to, I was curious, like, what your thoughts were on it, because I always think about, um, like, for example, like, last semester when I took, like I said, the online class, we had to find, like, different social media outlets that we could use um, that were you know, and how we can implement them into different disciplines. And after a while, some of them, I was like, I don't know if I could use this in math. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I can, but like, it seemed like a really cool idea. But I was like, I don't know how I can necessarily like implement that into classroom, my classroom, but yet, would it still be effective if I did? So that's where I think that question kind of came from.
0: So I think you just need to think of your learning goals first, and then decide what technology makes sense and not the other way around. I know that sounds pretty obvious, but I'm not sure if that happens all the time because sometimes technologies are there and we might be tempted to use them and not think necessarily about whether it's the best tool for that particular lesson. So that's what I think. Um, I wanted to talk about the digital technologies chapter a little bit where they talked about game-based learning and gamification. I was a little bit surprised that they had written somewhat favorably about gamification. And then later when they talked about game-based learning, they point out that there wasn't a lot of empirical support for that. I thought that was interesting because I thought there was more support. I think they said that it was shown to maybe have show motivation, but the learning transfer is the thing that is perhaps in doubt. And I was a little bit surprised by that.
1: So I mean, in the reality, like I think that game learning through gameplay is important to keep students engaged, but I don't really know if students are comprehending the material that they are learning and forming mm-hmm. a deep understanding of the material, or if they're just learning about it through the usage of games or social media or other forms of play, meaning that like they get distracted by like the rose coloredness of the game and they just like, they're like, okay, I'm just playing to play. Like when we were kids, we did like the, um, I don't know if you did like the reader rabbit, Mm -hmm. like games on the computer. And like, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, yes, I knew that like, it was a learning thing, but I was just doing it for the sake of like, it was a game that I was using that I was playing. And it just incorporated technology into me getting further in the game. I mean, education further in the game. So I think that like something like that, I mean, granted, this is now that's something from like the 90s, early 2000s. -hmm. This is now how many years old. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's like an example of like kids not knowing what they're learning or like being subconsciously unaware that they're learning and just playing the game to play the game. I think that's kind of my fear Mm -hmm. through gameplay is that students – are just gonna focus on the fact that it's a game or it's that they have to use social media or that they're you know, other forms of play, whatever it may be, that they're not gonna then form that deep understanding of the material. I don't know if you wanna counter that at all.
0: No, I know what you mean. And also just wanted to, before we move on, clarify the difference between game-based learning and gamification. So game-based learning would be learning through playing a game and gamification would be when you take something that's not a game and add game-like elements. So your progress report is designed with that in mind. And that's not a game. It has game-like elements, but it's not a game. That would be the key difference. Whereas a game that is used in a game-based learning scenario would be an actual game. And uh, I just wanted to clarify that. And I also wanted to just add that even if games are effective, You also need to think about how long it takes to play a game. I know a lot of games can easily require 20, 30, 40, maybe even more hours of play. And that's a lot of time and that a teacher can't afford to use for if it's just for one topic. So I think that's also an important consideration.
1: You know, you talk about like when you give a kid like a letter set
0: Hmm.
1: as a kid and they like they match them up and they figure out what letters A, B, C like that is. I feel like, you know, when they're younger, it's easier to target more of that content sometimes. Like, and I'm talking about like really little as opposed to like them getting distracted with, Oh, it's a puzzle or, Oh, it's a game. Whereas like when they get older, they're used to having fun all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that like, again, they are learning then in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just a matter of how, I don't want to use this word, but I'm going to anyways, like how blinded they are by the content that they're supposed to be learning or the material. Um, But yet, as you pointed out, that like even though we're learning, like it might not be content, but they might be learning something else in a way. So they might be learning like the skills of like collaboration or cooperation or um, like something that's more, I don't say practical, but in a way practical to their everyday lives as opposed to them using the content knowledge that we're used to feeding them.
0: And so when you say blinded, you're talking about, are they aware that they're learning what they're learning? Correct. Kind of thing? Yes. Um, uh, so I
1: was like, I didn't want to use that word, but that's exactly what I meant. So, so I think that also kind of leads into my question when I say that will t- learn, will students ever take their learning seriously or be motivated to learn if they're instructed through material, instructed material through a format other than playing?
0: I think play is a very broad term. I think often it is put mm-hmm. in opposition of something more serious or like work, but I think play is really important from a developmental point of view. And we talk about playing with ideas. I think there's risk-taking involved in play. So I think it is a very important part of learning. I don't think it necessarily is at the expense of learning. I think it just kind of depends on what role it has in your classroom Mm -hmm. and how it's used.
1: Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I think that um, – I just – I think of my eighth graders all the time um, when I think of this question because um, they love doing the cahoots. They love doing like anything. Like they come in every day they're like, what? Are we playing a game? Are we playing – and like they like bug out kind of thing, like mm-hmm. freaking out. But yeah, I'm like, uh, no, we're going to be doing something else today. And then they're like, uh And then they're like, Mm -hmm. why? And then halfway through the lesson, they're like, but why can't we do Kahoot today? Mm -hmm. Like, and I'm like, it's not the day for it, guys. Like, we're not doing that today. Like, we're going to be learning something new. Like, we're going to do this instead. And, like, they constantly come back to, like, that concept, I guess, of play. Even though I don't really consider Kahoot as, like, playing Mm -hmm. because they're doing it individually for the most part. Mm -hmm. I think more of playing is, like, an interaction between the students if we really wanted to be specific, But I always think of them when they they think of that as like, you know, fun for them and a playing activity for them. And, you know, sometimes they are motivated, but sometimes they're just like they're not focused on the lesson. They just want to be doing something else.
0: Yeah. I mean, have you heard of the Quest to Learn schools?
1: Uh, No, I'm not quite familiar with
0: those. So the idea behind Quest to Learn is to design classes around play. And so their entire curriculum for multiple grade levels. I don't remember what exactly. I know they cover middle school. It's not designed around traditional content areas, although they cover the topics, so they still meet the standards, they're a public school. But it's designed in a way where students are given what they call quests, and oftentimes students would initially be confronted by something that they can't do like a in a game in game terms it would be like a really difficult boss fight and they call it a boss fight. And then the teacher would then walk them back, walk them through the skills and the knowledge they need in order to get there. And then that way the student learning is tied more directly to their end goal. You can look them up there there are a lot of videos that are worth looking through. And so I think in that case, when you have an entire school design around play, then play wouldn't necessarily be seen as something that's different because everything is play or playful. And therefore, it's maybe less of a contrast as when you have a traditional classroom where play is framed as the reward. And and, and so I think maybe that's one way to do it.
1: I guess then also if we're talking about um, like Play or such. Um, do you think that web-based homework and flipped classrooms lead to the depersonalization of education? Um, like I know as teachers, we know that a personalized education is crucial to a student's learning. So if a student's homework is, homework is generic, how much are they actually in turn learning and internalizing?
0: Isn't a lot of homework generic already? Or what do you mean by generic?
1: So like example, like my what, the school that I'm in right now and I'm interning, we use Delta Math. Mm -hmm. Um, And Delta Math is kind of like a, like the teacher selects the topics and it generates the questions for the students, like it's an endless database. Mm. But I'm talking about like, for example, like those questions will be there regardless when when the teacher makes the assignment available. But like, as teachers, like, we look at the questions, like, say, like, on a worksheet or something like that, and we say, okay, like, we know that the students are going to have difficulty with this question tonight, so I'm not going to assign it, but rather I'm going to go over it in class tomorrow as a do now. So, like, when they give out the worksheet, they tell the students, okay, like, don't do do the whole worksheet except for let's say number 15 Mm. like we're gonna go over that in class tomorrow if you'd like to start it and try and get like a like try and see if you can figure it out by all means to accept the challenge kind of thing so I guess like that I feel like is more of a personalized homework
0: Mm.
1: and a personalized education because they're talking about like okay I know based on what the students struggled with today I know what they're going to struggle with tonight for homework so therefore I'm gonna give them something that can be considered a challenge that either they can try to complete tonight or I will go over it with them tomorrow. Like, does that make sense at all?
0: That's interesting because when I saw personalization, I was thinking of adaptive testing. So as you said, there's a large database of questions. And if a student gets it right, he or she is able to advance to the next level. And if they are not, then the system might provide easier questions, and, or even a pop-up a tutorial to make sure that students are understanding as, as they move through. So that is what I think of when I think of personalization, whereas you're talking about something else. You're talking about personalization in the sense that the teacher who knows all the questions ahead of time is able to cater the questions better to students. I guess my response would be perhaps to have students take both and maybe do some kind of research or do some kind of comparisons to see whether one outcome is better than the other and go from there. I think that would be my suggestion. Right. I want to talk briefly about the list of principles that was mentioned on page 188 to 189 of the Digital Technologies Reading, Box 8.3. So, if you've taken courses by me before, you know you probably recognize this topic because we talked about spiral we talked about spiral learning uh, two weeks ago, I think. and this would be one of the topics that I would keep coming back to because I consider one of the most important at least for educational technology is important. And uh, I was wondering what do you think about it.
1: It was really interesting for me because it allows like the teachers to create materials for math as well. um, like, and it gives us kind of like a way of like, I don't want to say to dispel like misconceptions, but in a way to kind of like beat students to the punch on like saying, okay, well, like, for example, um, the pertaining pre-training principle, like students learn better from multimedia lessons when they know the names and characteristics of main concepts. Like I'm not going to do a multimedia lesson on something that I'm just introducing to students. Like I want it to be something that maybe like, as they already kind of know the foundation, I can use it then for that. Um, or like, for example, like when it talks about the modality, where people learn better from graphics and narratives, um, like showing them, like, for example, if I have like a three-dimensional, Um, Figure that we're working with in geometry, and I pull up a 3D um, graphic on the screen and rotate it so students can see the, I guess, characteristics of that shape, then it kind of gives students more of an idea of like just how it works as opposed to me explaining it to them or giving them like a two dimensional picture and saying, okay, like just look at it and see what you can kind of figure out. Um, I think it kind of gives that extra depth with using technology and integrating it into the classroom.
0: What I like about these principles is that they're presented very clearly on what combination of words, images, narration works best. And if you think back on your own experience, I'm assuming many listeners would have had the experience of attending a really bad presentation. And oftentimes it's because it violates one of these principles, the most common one being reading off slides. Yes. Um, And... I think it's that's one of the things that we might instinctively know it's bad, but right. then when it comes time for us to do presentations, sometimes we fall into the same trap. If you think of the TED Talks, um, I can't think of any TED Talk in which the speaker reads off a slide. It's often the speaker is just speaking to the audience. There are no slides. and If there are slides, it's just images and videos.
1: Right. I think that the... The point, not the point, but in TED Talks, most of the time when they have that photo, it just uses like a reminder that what they should be talking about, not exactly repeating verbatim what's on the slide. Because at that point, it's meaningless to the student, it's meaningless to the viewer. Because why bother listening to the person talking if I can just read it right off the screen?
0: And it's not text heavy, even though oftentimes when people make slides, they, they still rely on text. And I think these principles lay out a good... Empirically supported reason and why we should not do things like reading off the slide. And I think it's really helpful for anyone who might be doing a video or even just when you're presenting to your class, something where you want students to be able to pay attention to the topic, engage with the presentation. Yes. So the last thing we need to talk about is the SAMR model. And I create a short video on it. I think it's pretty straightforward. And I aligned it with Bloom's taxonomy. And I was just wondering, what did you think of the framework or the model in general?
1: Um, so I thought that that was really interesting. And even as I was watching the video, I was thinking to myself, hmm, like, I don't know if I've ever really seen um, more. I don't think I've seen maybe the integration of technology beyond the point of substitution. Mm-hmm. Um so I wanted to get your thoughts. Like, have you ever seen schools use any other stage outside of substitution? And I mean, like, for example, like Google Documents. Like, we use that. I mean, that's I could think more augmentation. But like, when it comes to um, oh, like reading a textbook online as opposed to reading it in person, using that as an example.
0: I think it really depends on the kind of text you're talking about, because you you can design some really interactive electronic texts now. But I'm not sure how often it's read and with all the tools that are being used. And same with Google Documents, right? You can do a lot with Google Documents like creating hyperlinks and using it for collaboration. But I'm not sure whether those tools aren't being used because those tools can be more transformative than if you just used Google Documents as a substitute for, let's say, a written paper. So as I mentioned in the video, the idea is not so much the technology itself, but how you use it. And the more transformative the use of the tool, the higher it tends to be on Bloom's taxonomy.
1: Right. I actually wrote that down too. I was like, I thought that that was like, I really enjoyed how I saw that they related um, because I think as teachers too, we do tend to stick more of like the the lower levels of Bloom's taxonomy where it's just like memorizing, defining and repeating, whereas opposed to like, especially I think in math more so, um, I don't think like English, it's easy to kind of go like, okay, like who was the main character. But like, as you get into the upper level courses, it's like, okay, create an argument for why Hamlet did what he did or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's easier whereas opposed to in mathematics when, you know, you can't really like, critique or defend something that's already proven to be true or like it's very hard to do so you can do it but like as far as like in a high school level course you wouldn't necessarily be finding that maybe in a college level course that it would be more prominent um, so I thought that, that was interesting though just seeing how the SAMR model and Bloom's taxonomy related to each other
0: yeah I mean have you heard of Dan Meyer different no. Meyer <laughs> no I, I have not John uh, Jonathan, in your class, or in our class, um, yes. mentioned that, um, and Dan Mar is a mathematician, but he uses technology to pose interesting questions, like real-world questions about mathematics. Um, I think they're often just videos um, I haven't seen, but if you Google it, it, it he'll come up. And uh, I remember coming across him a few years back, and I found that to be really interesting, um, that he was using technology in a way that I would say does kind of make significant changes in how he teaches. And I think that there are also a lot of tools. I, I think the reading mentioned Sketchpad as something that geometry teachers use. Do you?
1: Geometer Sketchpad? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we don't use that in our, I mean, at least in my building, we don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't really speak personally. I have taken courses here um, at the university where, like, we've had to use it for our projects I mean, I think it's a great um, way to kind of like modify and redefine some things. It's kind of more of, um... well,
0: so what does it do?
1: So pretty much, like you can create your own shapes from the from on the sketch pad, and then kind of interact with them mm-hmm. on that fa- interface, which is kind of like cool. When you're like, you can rearrange like the uh, vertices of a triangle to create new triangles mm. um, based on a triangle that's already pre-existing. You can do um, intersections of circles and shapes and figuring out, like, if I rotate that figure within the circle, like, what happens kind of thing. Um, I think that it's, like, good for, like, applying and analyzing. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't think it's more, like, it it does kind of create some things. But I don't think, like, as far as, like, what the video uses, like,
0: an example with, like, creating
1: games that go with learning, I don't think that it necessarily does that.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Did, is there anything about Bloom's taxonomy that you want, just in general, that you want to talk about?
1: I mean, I'm pretty familiar with Bloom's. I mean, I can't speak for the rest of our class. Um, but I mean, like, I do enjoy the fact that Bloom's taxonomy kind of challenges the teacher to um, give more higher order. I know that that was something that, like, I always struggle with. Um, even though, like, I'm familiar with it, it's a matter of, like, because, I, and I always say that, like, um, when I've came in and get, gotten observed by like my professor, we've talked about how like I need to use more of Bloom's taxonomy. And like I said, I was like, well, this thing, this lesson was a really bad example of it. I was like, cause this was something that like, they were just learning for the first time.
0: Yeah. So
1: That's I was a like, good these, point. so I was like, so I really can't get to that higher level quite yet with them if they don't have the foundation. I was like, it is something that like, yes, I'm going to continue to challenge myself to do. But I was like, I just can't, I, you couldn't see it today because they just didn't. And like, they were also a class too that I know struggles with like learning new material on the first day. Yeah. So I was like, I knew I wasn't going to jump automatically to that highest level of Bloom's taxonomy with them when they weren't even at the memorization or like repeating like phase and like not saying that they need to re- repeat verbatim to me. But like, for example, and I, I know that I mentioned a lot of geometry um, in my class comments but like it's that's the class i'm the most passionate about i really enjoy that class Mm -hmm. but like they need to know kind of what the i don't want to say what the base the necessities are but they need to know the necessities of what makes a side angle side triangle congruence theorem like how they get to that and what the definition of that is and before they can even say okay yeah that triangle is proven congruent by side angle side like if they don't know what the characteristics are that make up that theorem and how we can get there, like using either like addition property or set or reflexive, those kind of things, then they'll never get to that part. So I yeah. think that, that that's with blooms. It's just important that like, we don't jump automatically to that creating stage before mm-hmm. um, we go through the other stages first.
0: Yeah. I think in my video, I said, I like the pyramid because it, not only show the hierarchy, but it kind of shows you maybe a ratio as well in in the sense that you can't have every class be about creating something. You still need to start at the bottom, and I think the way I think of the taxonomy is to think of it in terms of something you can look for in a unit to make sure that these activities are there or that it reflects the taxonomy right but that you're not always going for the higher order thinking because you still need the lower order thinking stuff
1: yeah i really like the pyramid myself that also um and i kind of think that like i think of it more as like okay like the basis of a pyramid like kind of when you're doing a rock wall like the, the base level is always the easiest one mm-hmm. but as you get further and further to the top there are less um, rocks that you can grab onto. And I kind of think that that's more of like, again, like as a higher, you get on the pyramid, the harder it is, but yet Mm -hmm. the more rewarding it is when you're at that point. Right. So like, think of it that way as well.
0: Right. It's, it's like the, you know, you can't run before you walk. Yes. Is it walk before you crawl. I don't remember, but what, you know, the idea idea is the same, right? So you, you can't jump ahead before you know the basics. Correct. Okay, so the last question that I would ask is looking back at all the readings that we've done,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, the we talked about the TPAC model, we talked about the different principles that the digital technologies chapter mentioned, and then that you have the SAMR model. Mm-hmm. What What is your takeaway or how do you use these things, uh, these different readings to help you figure out kind of, how to move ahead with technology integration. So uh, we're just basically, we just starting this discussion, right? Um, for yeah. the class. So, um, but I was just wondering, um, again, just speaking for yourself, where do you see yourself moving ahead?
1: So I think that like, obviously using um, box 8-1 on like six, uh, page 165 or digital technology, like the key affordances, mm-hmm. like I think that that's like a great place with starting, but I, because that kind of gives you the, I guess narrows down your field on what technologies you would be looking at mm-hmm. as far as like what's effective for your classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously like foremost, like making sure you have that content pedagogical and technological knowledge, because without that, you really don't have a basis for your technologies and your lessons as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's really important, but then also looking at now the SAMR model, when you're, implementing a technology is it something that you're substituting is it something that you're like trying to adapt and make different like for example hyperlinking information in a google document or mm-hmm. is it something more that you're having students create where like they're get using technology they're creating their own material and they're gaining more insight to the information from that Mm -hmm. um i think that that's ultimately the goal as teachers that we should be reaching for and and that translates like i said before to bloom's taxonomy where like you're reaching that higher level you have to go through those lower levels of thinking um the lower levels of bloom's taxonomy before you can get to that creation stage which is um again like developing their own material um so i think that like they all play a role hand in hand um Mm -hmm. i do think that like the content pedagogical and technological knowledge is the first and foremost thing to mm-hmm. kind of look at because you have to say to yourself, all right, am I really great, at great with technology? And if I'm, I am, that kind of gives me a whole window of things to look at. But if I'm not, that kind of restricts my window even more. Mm. And then from there, looking at the learning technologies and saying to yourself, okay, well, if I'm great at technology, I still have all these options, but I want to choose, you know, let's say three out of the eight that they gave me for the technology that I want to use with my students and then finding one that matches both of those levels and then if you're not great with technology then maybe only focusing on like one or two of Mm -hmm. these key affordances that would help the students go from there.
0: So that's interesting so you're saying that you would start with the TPAC model to kind of assess your own understanding and then depending on your your familiarity with technology you would then use um you would use the technology read uh, technology digital technology reading and the samr model to help you kind of fine-tune your your what technologies you pick and how you use them yes um because
1: i think as a teacher like we cannot we can't expect our students to excel in something if we can't excel.
0: Sure.
1: Um, And I think that, like, we have to be able to be there as a resource for them when they can excel that we know kind of how to help them from there. So I think that that's why it's important for us as teachers to assess, like, our knowledge first Mm -hmm. before we can put it onto a student.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really good starting point. And I wanted to point out that just because your unit plan has Chromebooks or smart boards or iPads, That itself doesn't tell me how you're using the technology. I'm really going to be interested in not just what technologies you use, but how you're using it. Are you reaching the higher levels of SAMR model and Bloom's taxonomy? Are you using technology in a smart way that allows students to learn and that you're not just substituting Mm -hmm. one thing for another? And so... That's going to be where we'll be continuing this class moving forward. So I think that about wraps it up. Do you think there's anything else we need to cover?
1: No, I think that that's about it.
0: All right, then next week, we're going to be talking about universal design. I know we touched on this topic here and there, but we're going to talk about it more specifically next week. Brittany, thank you so much for coming back a second time.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
0: I'll talk to you later then.